Hello and welcome to GradCast from the Graduate School at Syracuse University. My name is Glenn Wright. I'm Director of Programs for the Graduate School. With me is Dan Olson-Bang. He's Director of Professional and Career Development for the Graduate School. Welcome, Dan. Thank you. Today, our series on the academic job search continues with a look at the first of several documents that are going to go into your application package for an academic job. And many would say it's the most important of those documents, the Curriculum Vitae or CV. Uh, and of course, this is an important document for you in lots of academic contexts, not just the job search. Uh, but Dan, so you've been looking at these for a long time, if not on a daily, then an almost daily basis. So you've seen tons of CVs. Um, it plays a role that is kind of parallel to the resume for non-academic job searches, but yet they're not the same. So could you just kind of quickly review what some of the key differences are between a resume and a CV? Sure. At, at a glance, first of all, um, the, the most fundamental and obvious difference between a CV and a resume is length. Uh, a resume for most people in most circumstances is going to be one page. It could be for some people and in some circumstances, one page, two sides, but you're never going to have something that's longer than that. Whereas a CV could be, I mean, anybody who's looked at their advisor's uh, CV will see that it, it looks like it's, you know, an enormous document, 20 pages, you know, in tiny font, everything's crammed together. Uh, for the average uh, person who's going on the job market for the first time and coming out of a PhD program, I'd say you're going to have maybe a three to five page document. I've seen longer and I've seen shorter work, uh, but I think that's a, a decent um, kind of start with it. Other aspects that are different about a CV and a resume are how they're, how they're framed um, for the audience. So typically, a resume is going to have a job listed, along with how long you were there and what your role was, followed by a few different bullet points. And those bullet points are, are devised for you to explain the kinds of things that you did at the job. There are circumstances in which those are also going to be on your CV, but they're less common. And what you get instead are a bunch of really listy things. So you get, for instance, a, a category called publications. And within the publications category, all you have is a citation, much the same as it would be if somebody else had published it, even though it's you or you and a, a, a group of people. And I often ask people, so why is it that you don't have a series of bullets under it explaining what it took to publish this article? And the answer comes down to a difference in audience. While um, a, a resume assumes that your audience needs to be educated a little bit about you as a, as a worker, as an employee, and so on, we do know in academia what it takes to publish a paper. And so you don't need to explain what goes into it. And in fact, because you're talking to such a kind of insider audience, the there are a few pieces of salient information that will come from the from the citation that wouldn't be known to an outsider. So somebody is going to go straight to your publications section, for instance, and they know what journals to look for. And so half the time, it's not even the topic that you have. It's did it come from science or nature or PMLA or any of these other critical places? And that's really the main thing they want to know, especially during that all critical first glance at your document. Um, 
The, the shorthand I have for this distinction is to say that a resume is a document centered around relevance, relevance in particular in this case to you and this job, versus a CV, which is a kind of a comprehensive accounting of your academic life and is very much concentrated around those factors. And so the way that a resume can be a one-page one or two-sided document, even after you've had a lot of experience, is that you're going to restrict its contents to those things that most explicitly respond to the job at hand. Whereas a CV can be a chronicling of things that you've done since 1989 if they're part of a category like publications. It's possible to truncate some of these, and in many cases there's no harm. On the other hand, uh, when you have uh, those listings, that just gives sort of a sense of what you've been doing and what your trajectory is, and that's totally acceptable for a CV. So you end up with very different documents. A CV is very listy. It's very um, basic and simple, and it assumes that basically what you're trying to do is to get across to your audience some salient facts about you as an academic that they're likely to understand. Okay, you mentioned the all-critical first glance that your CV is going to get, and you might think that 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 is going to be even more critical in the context of the academic job search, where people are going to be looking at your CV at the very early stage in the process. That's probably the very first thing that they will see about you is the CV. And they've got a giant stack of similar application material sitting there that they want to very quickly get down to a manageable number of people that they might actually interview. So I think you really want to get everything that is going to be advantageous for your candidacy in particular on that first page because you don't know if they're going to flip the page. Absolutely. So what's your strategy for organizing the content of a CV? You said somewhere between three to five pages might be typical for someone coming out of graduate school looking for a, an academic job. What, is the, what kind of information are you going to put on the CV and how are you going to organize that so that the people will see what makes you stand out as a candidate right there on page one? Sure. So um, unlike a resume, which could have a, a widely divergent set of kind of thematic categories, um, a, a CV is really going to be restricted down to three large groupings of activities that you do. So I always say it's, it's a three-legged stool. So you've got teaching, research, and service. And just about any way that you look at a job ad for an academic position, those three parts are going to be there. And it's largely a matter of shuffling and prioritizing those that you're looking at. So the way that you have to do a, a CV that's successful in this, in this uh, kind of world is to figure out um, what goes into those three categories and then essentially in what order and in what quantity those three parts will will happen. So as as you said, Glenn, the first page is kind of like for a journalist, the top of the fold, so or above the fold. So in a newspaper that's sitting on a street corner and asking you to buy it, the front of the newspaper is going to have the articles that it theoretically will motivate you to buy the thing. And I have seen on occasion a CV where somebody's education and sort of loosely affiliated things surrounding the education go all the way down to the top, down to the bottom rather, 
of the first page. And that's a real problem because it means that you haven't gotten to the end of the page while announcing something about your intentions as a candidate. So within those three categories, typically you're going to start, and there should be something on your first page about this, either with your teaching or with your research, depending on what you see um, about that particular institution. So you're applying to the famed R1 category, a research-intensive university where they care in very significant ways about your, your grantsmanship and your publications. Well, then, if you start off with your teaching and you go on and only on page three or four will I find anything about the you know the research that you've done you're not going to you're not going to get that job not because you don't have great research but because they're never going to get there and so you know i think about a cv as a kind of an information storage device and it's sort of like a closet if there are things that you get from a closet frequently then it doesn't make any sense to bury them in the back of the closet where you always have to dig not the, not to say that my closets are particularly organized, but you do want to make sure that in the course of this, you um, you make the information that you have to suss out is what they care about most very accessible to these people. They care about research, you put it right up front. Now, saying that, I still would say that your education is always going to be at the top of the page for a person who is just beginning the job search. Um there are some other points that I think are really critical and, and, and bear thinking about with this document. Because they contain so much information and because they are going to be looked at so superficially at first, not to say that they'll always be viewed superficially, but at the very outset they will, um, you need to have a very clean look to your CV. Nothing fancy. No... Um, no fancy fonts, no colors, no photographs, just a really clean look with a consistent format that will enable them to move fairly seamlessly through the document. If you have um, your dates on the left for part of it, and then you got dates on the right for part of it, some of them are numerical dates and other ones are October 2013, um, and you have, um, you know, things are packed together or very spread apart, and your font your, your margins are microscopic, uh, you're, you're not going to get through to people. I have to say that as I've done this job for longer, I find myself less and less patient with a microscopic font on a, on a CV. Do 12-point, you can do Garamond, Times New Roman, Georgia, and I may be running low on options. So really, it's, it's all about simplicity. That's true for a resume, but it's much truer for a CV, I'd say. Yeah, okay. So we've got like contact information and education up there right at the beginning. And then we kind of move down in order of the importance of the items relative to the job that you're applying for. Um, so let's say it's a research job, or, you know, so the, the teaching load might be something like 2-2 or something. That's a good two courses per semester, good indication that they're going to be looking at research output when they're when they're assessing their candidates. Uh, so publications would likely be the next category that you would have in that circumstance. Uh, and then how do you organize within that? Now, most graduate students aren't going to have a huge number of publications, but they might have a few and they might be in sort of different categories. There might be different types of publications. 
Um, is there a strategy, or maybe there's more than one strategy, for kind of organizing that information again so that you get the really critical and beneficial items kind of up at the top? Yeah. Um, so there are a number of different ways that you format your publications or categorize them rather, um, so that people know um, a few things about you as a researcher. So first of all, a journal article that is published or that is forthcoming, as in in press or however you want to call that, is as good as published. Even if they're going to publish it 100 years after your um, after your retirement, nevertheless, uh, it's published. So that'll be a category called publications. But what about the rest of it? What about things that you're working on or that you've you've revised and they're res- they're um, they've asked you to resubmit? Well, those are categories. So you might have a category called manuscripts in progress, or um, even in your publications category, I suppose you could squeeze in the revise and resubmit, but I would be very careful with your actual publications category only to put things that are, are published or are very, very close to it, just so that people don't get skeptical about what you have. Um, there are also um, manuscripts in preparation, and that's a category that's legitimate, but I would be careful. It's not every course paper that you've ever done. It is things that you're really working on and that you have a reasonable chance of um, completing in the near future. Yeah, and I also think it's a good idea just to be very upfront about which category each of your actual or prospective publications falls in. Very often people will simply use parentheses to indicate if it's if it's uh, revised for public, if it's forthcoming, if it's under revision for publication, if it's under consideration for publication, uh, you want to be upfront with that information. It doesn't, because obviously it's going to be much more beneficial. People, people want to know what you have published or what is for sure going to come out. They're going to be a lot less interested in the list of things that you're hoping one day will result in a publication. Absolutely. Um, Dan, what about other things besides uh, like your, your, um, uh, peer-reviewed journal article, sort of in most fields, kind of the gold standard of publications. What about other kinds of publications? Uh, they might be things like uh, book reviews or encyclopedia entries, or perhaps publications for not fully academic audiences, let's say. Uh, are those important? How should you treat those in a CV? I think most of those are important in most circumstances. Sometimes you'll have a conference publication that's actually, in some fields, the way that people publish. And so there's actually a tremendous variety. And unlike the gold standard published article, there's enough variety to this that I would suggest making sure that you've kind of determined what the departmental norms are so that you um, you know, you don't kind of get lost in it and um, and do things in a way that that differs from what your you know what your department or discipline would do, but certainly you want to make sure that you're getting down every kind of um, publication that would be considered a milestone without inflating to the point of losing credibility. Right. Okay. So now let's flip it and say that you're applying for a job at a teaching intensive institution, like a place where you might teach a four, four load, four courses per semester. Good indication that they might have some expectations for you in research, but they're not going to be particularly strenuous. They're really looking for somebody who excels in the classroom. 
So what do you do there? Do you just list the classes you've taught or TA'd for? How do you communicate your teaching experience? Please don't just list the courses. Um, in fact, one of the funny things that I see sometimes is you'll have this long list, you know, um, SEM 103, HST 458, and, you know, outside of your institution, these mean nothing. It, they don't really help to clarify anything, whereas obviously within your institution, they're meaningful. I would say that as a rule of thumb, you would get rid of those lists, the numbers, and keep the course title. Um, but basically, you want to make sure that you are getting across what you've done as a teacher, whether as a teaching assistant or um, as an instructor of record, so that people have a sense of it. People often put, you know, TA and then the name of the course. And there are lots of different ways of being a TA and lots of levels of involvement as a TA. And so if you're not going to include information that really gives a sense of what you've done, which, by the way, could include office hours, guest lecturing, um, and, and any other sort of administrative function, along with being the, the grader and the person who kind of keeps an eye on the students and keeps them awake, I think that there, there's, there's a lot to be said for making sure that people are aware of, of the range of your responsibilities. It may overlap from course to course, and that's fine, but make sure, obviously, that it doesn't visually just say the same thing one after the other. The other thing that I would tell people is um, that, you know, they often say to me, well, if I'm going to get rid of the course number, then I'm also getting rid of demographic information. I, you know, a 400 might indicate that it's senior level and that it's majors only, although it doesn't always, right? But um, what I would say is that's an opportunity to list that underneath the thing. So you've got your course, it's, you know, British history part one. So that's, you know, years, whatever to whatever. Uh, below that, you could say something like um, seminar style, sophomores only um, course with lab. I doubt that there's a lab in British history, but you get my point. And then below that, there'd be another bullet that, that described the range of your responsibilities. Mm -hmm. It may be that when you have been instructor of record, or if you have been instructor of record for a course that you say, you know, devised syllabus, uh, lessons, chose readings, and, and you could even give some of the themes or, or ideas or sometimes texts that you will assign as a way of giving kind of a thumbnail sketch of, of who you are as a teacher. And for those teaching positions, that stuff is tremendously important. And it's worth noting that while you would start with your research at a research institution, you're going to start in the case of a teaching institution with your teaching right after your education section. So that should still be on page one or begin on page one. And there may be other aspects, the certificate of university teaching and other elements that happen uh, that you'll, you'll want to kind of keep and in that larger section of that one leg of the, of the three-legged stool that I, that I talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I like that idea a lot about including the information about the specific class and for sure differentiating between any course for which you were the primary instructor versus a TA, but within the category of TA, making sure that they know what you did. For example, if you're leading discussion and recitation sections, that's a very teacherly kind of role. You want to make sure they understand that that's part of your duties, not just grading and office hours. Yep. Now, so let's say you're applying for a job at a teaching-focused institution, but you don't really have a whole lot of teaching experience uh, in terms of like college-level courses. But maybe you've had some experience, uh, I don't know, leading training sessions or other kinds of things that have a kind of teacherly aspect to them. Is it appropriate to include that kind of stuff? What's the right way to present that information, if at all, in a CV? I mean, if you were a camp counselor when you were 16 years old, that probably isn't going to fit. But there are things like being a teaching mentor, uh, serving as a mentor to a student, uh, and there there may be a volunteer opportunities and other things that don't get top billing, but that w- that should be there. Uh, you know, honestly, if you have been a research machine and you are applying to a job that would require you to do very little research, you've got some explaining to do. And you want to make sure that in the course of that, you show that you have a pre-existing abiding interest in being a teacher. And if you don't do that, if you neglect that opportunity, then that's just not necessarily going to put you at the top of the heap. So um, I would actually seek out those opportunities. If you say either I want to balance my options or you want, or you say, I, I want to, um, you know, target this. I thought I wanted to do research, but it turns out that research involves writing and I hate writing or something like that. Yeah. Okay, that leads us actually kind of nicely to the third leg of that three-legged stool you were talking about, uh, which is service. Now, that is an area where you probably, if you want to have any kind of record there, you're probably going to have to seek out some opportunities. What are some opportunities to build a record in service? Um, And maybe you could just kind of talk a little bit about how that relates for a job, an initial job applicant versus, you know, the research and the teaching that we've already talked about. How important is it? And what are some things that a grad student could do to at least have some kind of visible presence in that category? There are a lot of different kinds of service and, and some kinds of service would be uh, not valued in one area where it's valued in another. Um, so if you were to be a research, you know, looking for a research job, and you wanted to do some of this, it would matter less that you were, for instance, a member of the grad student organization than it might in other categories. But if you were to be the head of the Genetics Society graduate student chapter and you're in genetics, uh, that might be really valuable. Mm -hmm. Other forms of service that might be valuable to a researcher would be um, serving as a journal reviewer Mm -hmm. or... um, you know, being part of the FPP program or even, you know, organizing FPP workshops and things like that, future professoriate program. On the other hand, uh, and service becomes, I think, most important in either a community college or teaching jobs, where in addition to teaching 1,000 classes, you'll also be on 1,000 committees. You sort of have to show that you can you can bear it, so to speak. Um, if you are doing... Um, the grad student organization, or you are um, serving on committees in the larger university, or um, 
you know, doing doing things within the community that would be of value um, for future employers, I think that that can be really handy. Uh, but basically, you're trying to show that you are willing to engage beyond the simple kind of um, um, educational uh, piece that you have to do. So you might be a, a member of the Women's and Gender Studies group. You may be... Um, you know, a member of, of reading groups, dissertation completion groups, there are all kinds of different ways of getting involved. And any of those can signal certain things about you to future employers. Yeah, uh, I would say professional organizations might be another opportunity for grad students to get yeah. involved in service. Uh, usually at least the large professional organizations will have sections devoted to graduate student interests or they will reserve slots for graduate students on other committees. Um, that can be, and obviously at the department, your, your home department will also provide those kinds of opportunities. Um, those are great things that look good on your CV. They show that you're someone who's concerned about departmental citizenship. Uh, and they can also be great ways to extend your network at the same time. Yeah. Dan, we're almost out of time here, but I do want to give you a chance to address this question. We've been talking about uh, tailoring your CVs for research jobs, tailoring them for teaching jobs. How much of this kind of tailoring do you really need to do? I, I mean, I suppose it depends if you're applying to five jobs versus 75 jobs, how much time you have for this. But is there a rule of thumb, like how many different versions of your CV do you really need to have on hand? I usually suggest uh, more substantive changes to a resume than a CV, um, but I think that there are both sequencing and emphasis issues that you need to hit with a CV. And what you said about versions really gets to a lot of it. So if you are applying to, let's say, every job that comes your way, and th there are 75 jobs in some um, some areas and in other areas, there are five jobs. And you know that everybody that you know and everybody that they know is applying to those same five jobs. Um, either way, you, um, you'll want to make sure, first of all, that you're getting the emphasis right. So don't misread a school. Go on uh, the Carnegie classification system and figure out what kind of an institution it is. Is it an R1? Is it an R2? Does it not even know what R is? Um <laughs> A, sort of a non-pirate institution, <laughs> but um, make sure that you um, you you lead in the right way, right? So a teaching school starts with teaching, a research school starts with research. Um, but then beyond that, let's say that you're applying to a school that is uh, that would have you doing a four-four teaching load, four in the fall, four in the spring. I would maybe even consider shortening what you have to say about research, especially if you become a tremendous researcher, believe it or not, I would truncate that category. Yep. Um, similarly, they're going to care less about you at an Uber research institution. They're going to care less about your teaching exploits. And so you're going to compress that. So some of the things that I said earlier about how you talk about your teaching within the category may either be truncated or in some cases eliminated, especially if you've taught a lot of courses. You're trying to send a particular message. And so, you know, I think those are very crucial. Most people have, um, you know, a couple of different versions or even three different versions to, to accommodate that. 
Yeah, and what some people like to do is just have a super CV that includes absolutely everything they might ever want to include on any CV. So you would never send that document to any actual place, but it's all sitting there ready to go. So if you need to cherry pick something, like let's say there's something that you've done that wouldn't go on a CV that you would send out most places, but responds to something in the job posting in a way that might help your candidacy, you can just kind of pluck that out and you don't have to create it from scratch every time. You just mine that giant CV for whatever it is that's appropriate. Mm -hmm. yep. Well, Dan, thank you so much for sharing your insights on the CV. Uh, next time we'll be talking about another one of those super critical documents for the academic job search, the cover letter. Till then, be safe and well. This has been GradCast from Syracuse University. Mm -hmm.